They're back and better than ever at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. They are the F-Bomb company. Fat is smart fuel. They have made some incredible products for the ketogenic community, and they make keto easier. They have products that include coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, house blend, MCT oil, olive oil, avocado oil, macadamia nut butter with sea salt, macadamia nut butter without salt, coconut butter, macadamia nut butter blend. They also have salted chocolate macadamia nut butter. These are all available to you now at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. And if you head on over there now and you use the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb, they'll give you 10% off of your first order. JimmyLovesFBomb.com Do you miss pizza because it's not a part of your low-carb lifestyle? Then let me introduce you to Real Good Pizza Company. Go to realgoodpizzaco.com and you'll see they have grain-free, gluten-free pizzas that are frozen, 25 grams of protein, 4 grams of carbohydrates, and lots and lots of healthy fats. They only use real food ingredients, almost no carbs, and it's perfect for any low-carb and ketogenic lifestyle. The crust is made from all-natural Parmesan and chicken. The chicken is antibiotic-free and hormone-free. The tomatoes in the sauce and the vegetables in the Supreme are non-GMO, and the cheese is locally sourced and all-natural as well. It's healthy, guilt-free pizza that actually tastes like a pizza. Again, it's called Real Good Pizza. Head on over to realgoodpizzaco.com. And be sure to use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 10% off your order as well as free shipping. Real good pizza. Coming up in episode 1263, Nora Gengadis. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author. You're like the LL Cool J of podcasting. Jimmy Moore. Hey, hey, guys, we're back here on the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. And today I am very privileged to welcome back on the podcast again. It's been a little while since we've had the amazing Nora Gedgaudis with us. She is a board certified nutritional consultant, a board certified clinical neurofeedback specialist who has over two decades of clinical experience. She's a recognized authority on ketogenic diets, ancestrally based nutrition. She's also a popular speaker, educator, and the author of the best selling book Primal Body Primal Mind as well as Rethinking Fatigue which I really loved that book by the way Miss Nora uh, her latest book is called Primal Fat Burner Live Longer Slow Aging Superpower Your Brain and Save Your Life with a high fat low carb paleo diet it's been lauded by best selling author and journalist Nina Teicholz as a unique and profound contribution to the field she also does a weekly educational program called Primal Restoration which is a unique and invaluable source of information benefiting those who are interested in furthering their nutritional knowledge and 
optimizing their health. Nora Gidgaudis, my friend, welcome back to the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show. Oh, Jimmy, it's it's been too long. It's just nice to be talking to you again. You know, you were one of the first like big names that I talked to on this show many years ago now. Oh, uh, like, there were still covered wagons back then. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So you've been out there a very long time. You've seen trends kind of come and go. You've been around from when Atkins was kind of at its tail end and even still kind of hot and then going into paleo and how that kind of burned hot for a while and now gone uh, down a little bit. And now ketogenic has risen to huge prominence. And so you have a very unique perspective kind of overlooking all these changes that have happened over the years. Does any of it surprise you? Well, no, not really. Um, You know, the popularity of various things rises and falls depending on what labels you slap on it. But one thing that has not changed is particularly is my uh, particular approach. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I have basically been saying the same thing since, uh, more or less, since 2009. Since caveman days. <laughs> since caveman days, since, since those covered wagon days. And, um, you know, only what's happened is that, you know, I've gotten, um, you know, more focus. I've come into much more research. Um, I've broadened. That, you know, I'm always learning new things. I'm always taking in some new things. Mm-hmm. And I make, you know, tweaks and modifications as new information comes along. But fundamentally, um, I have remained um, uh, rather uh, uncharacteristically of, of pretty much the, all of these genres. I've remained consistent yes. in my message. Um, I haven't wavered with the tide. I haven't gone whichever way the wind is blowing. I'm right. not. I don't do what I do from a marketing standpoint. That's not how my mind works. It's by not motivates me, right at all. As a matter of fact, had it been by design, <laughs> you know, I would have been way smarter. And Primal Body Primal would have been 15 books instead of one. There you go. And you know, it all would have pointed towards something I was selling or you know whatever. I, I don't think that way. Um, and I don't really want to think that way. You know, I can I can maybe hire people to help, you know, handle business sides of things for me because I don't really see myself as a businesswoman. Yeah. Um, what I am is I'm extremely passionate and extremely driven to make a measurable difference in people's lives for those people that are. I'm not interested in proselytizing. I'm not interested in, you know, in converting the whole world to my point of view. My interest is in taking people that have arrived at a place of openness to this subject matter and, you know, providing them with the information that they want or need so that in the end they don't need me or anything else. They just know what to do. And that ultimately what gets me up in the morning is seeing people self-empowered. Um, a lot of people get come to this at a very desperate point in their lives. They're morbidly obese. They have type 2 diabetes. They have heart disease, cancer, any of these, what we oh, now yes. know are all metabolic diseases tied back to exactly what we're putting in our mouths and our lifestyle choices. And so when you get people in that vulnerable estate, Nora, it's very easy to get them to buy into what you're saying. Well, and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to cash in on people's vulnerability either. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, but but 
yes, sometimes it, it, this, uh, this unfortunate aspect to human nature that people often don't make the changes they need to until the pain of the problem starts to exceed the pain of the solution. And hopefully somewhere in that quagmire, you know, uh, on that stormy sea, they, they, you know, see, you know, the... Um, you know, the solid footing that is this foundational information I provide. And that's the thing. I'm all about um, ex- being extremely foundational and extremely functional in my approach to everything. I'm always about getting to the bottom of everything. You're much to the chagrin of my parents that raised me, you know, my, my kind of hyper-conservative Northern European parents, you know, um, you know, I was the kid with the flashlight wanting to shine the light in the darkest places and say, oh, look at this. Or why is this? Or, you know, just because it is, or just because I say so, or just because that's the way it's done. Well, that was never good enough for me. I always had to kind of understand the why behind everything in life, which drove my parents crazy, and in part because it made them uncomfortable and forced them to question some of their own ideas. But, you know, I'm not trying to be necessarily a rabble rouser though i sort of end up being one um i'm, I'm not really that interested in being confrontive and and bad mouthing uh, you know other people and and um you know just kind of creating a spectacle um just to get attention it's it's more about you know there are a lot of things we need to question about what we've been taught about yes. What, for instance, healthy eating is all about, and there, I can get very conspiracy theorist with it, except that it's not theory. I mean, it's it's, you know, um, it is rational conspiracy speculation, you know, uh, toward why things are the way they are, and we we've seen, for instance, uncovered in in the last uh, number of months here, the this whole thing that, you know, where. Where the New York Times uncovered, for instance, you know, documentation showing that it was the sugar industry yes. uh, in the 1960s that basically bought and paid for certain research conclusions that were designed to conceal and protect that industry from all of the emerging evidence showing that dietary sugar was really the primary culprit in these burgeoning and um, you know levels of obesity and heart yep. disease. Yep. All at the same time, conveniently directing blame toward dietary fat and particularly animal fat. You know this dietary inclusion that's played this key beneficial role in our evolution for close to three million years. And you know key collaborators were people like Ans- you know Ansel Keys, who was also probably Ooh. instrumental in burying that other study um, that recently was unearthed in a, in, a, in somebody's basement. Yes. That like one of the best uh, constructed studies of its kind looking at the causes of metabolic diseases uh, based on, on diet and actually found that, well, yeah, this, this you know, the Ansel Keys approach to eating certainly lowered cholesterol, but it also increased mortality right. and, and other problems. So um, that got buried in some somebody's basement until now. And, you know, this is all coming out now, right? It's all coming out in the wash. And we've been ridiculed for a while, um, although I, I think that that's kind of dying back. Lots of people are getting the idea that, yeah, things aren't the way we were told. Um, and, yeah, maybe dietary fat isn't as bad as we once thought, or, yeah. you know, maybe it's okay as long as it's olive oil and avocados and maybe a little coconut, you know, but careful with that saturated coconut fat. Um and all of that kind of thing, but dietary animal fat still kind of remains a bit of a pariah 
it, that's changing a bit too, but it's either kind of still people are, you know, squeamish, you know, they put their toe, toe in the water and it's cold and they're afraid to jump in. Yeah. Or, um, or, you know, they just sort of wholesale buy, buy into it and decide they're going to, you know, pile on uh, and, and you know, pour fat into everything that they're eating. And, you know, they're so, um, you know, I'm basically trying to make a case here for an ancestral approach. And what I mean by an ancestral approach is eating the foods, the kinds of foods that would have been most recognized is our, uh, you know, evolutionary antecedents, you know, our ancient ancestors, our prehistoric ancestors as being recognizable as food, right? Um, that the kinds of foods that would have been available to us as an emerging species and the most consistently throughout that evolutionary development would certainly have been rationally, you know, the foods that would have helped uh, design our physiological makeup and and establish our nutritional requirements. That's just kind of common sense. Yeah. And we do know from stable isotopic analysis and all of that now what consistently those foods were. And, you know, they were foods from these enormous herbivores. That's what we preferred. We ate a whole lot of other things, too. But, you know, um, and so there's that. And, um, but, so, so many people... You know, when you look at ancestral diets, and let's use the work of Weston Price because I think it's a good place to kind of, and that was actually my starting place in some respects, but it what, it didn't go far back enough for me. I, it wasn't foundational enough for me. It's like, okay, Weston, this is super cool, and I, I got to go back further. <laughs> um, you know, later, dude. Um, I'm not so convinced about these properly prepared grains things, you know, right. whatever. So, um, and, you know, so he went, he spent, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners are just, you know, totally know who he is, so we don't have to talk about oh, yeah. that. Yeah. So he spent, you know, 10 years of his life and traveling 100,000 miles across the globe during a really unique period in human history. And I'm so envious I could just, you know, my head could just explode because the guy, we had just developed air travel, and yet there were all of these primitive cultures and societies still thriving in their in their traditional ways on the earth. And there were some traditional, uh, more pastoral, you know, Neolithic societies that were uh, groups or whatever that were tucked away in like the Lotiondel Valley in Switzerland and other places where they'd lived in relative isolation for a couple thousand years and um, Celtic islands and various things, Outer Hebrides. So he went and he took a look at all these different things and looked at the health of the people who were eating in the traditional manner and, and, and found, you know, certainly that where people had maintained um, their their kind of traditional dietary patterns, they were remarkably free from disease and dental problems, and and you know mental and physical health was was generally excellent. Um, and then when wherever they were starting to kind of move into more enculturation with with modern lifestyle and more exposed to more industrialized foods and things like that, obviously the health was declining and this became all the more noticeable just as with Francis Pottinger's work over subsequent generations. Um, but the, what people 
ten, you know, and, and of course he was he was looking at the Aborigines in Australia. He was looking at, you know, the uh, Inuit in in northern Alaska and other northern Canadian people groups, and he was looking at people groups in South America and in Africa and all these other places. And so, of course, you're talking a whole variety of different ecosystems, climates, and different types of food availability in all these different places. All from a very Neolithic context, by the way, Uh, very, uh, you know, uh, Holocene, shall we say, climate kind of situation. And what he found was a huge variety of diets and but, you know, they all seemed fairly healthy. So the conclusion that most people took away from that was, okay, just eat real food, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And this whole jerf thing that's sort of arisen from that, as long as it's natural, grows out of the ground, and, you know, primitive people might have, you know, stuff, been able to stuff in their faces and not drop dead, um, that means that that food must be optimal for me too. And there's really no rational basis for that assumption. And this is where I kind of part ways a little bit, shall we say, you know, you know, all with love and whatever, but with the kind of the whole paleo thing, which is just like, you know, if it's natural, go for it. Yeah. Because the other thing Weston Price did that kind of gets ignored a little bit, and to me is much more key, um, and that has really caught my attention, is he was smart enough to ask himself the question, what did all of these healthy cultures have in common? What were the common denominators? And there were two. Number one, you know, tried as he might, he couldn't find a vegan culture out there, a vegetarian culture. He just couldn't. He he wanted to. It was a great disappointment. He assumed there were out there. He just couldn't find them. And so and he was kind of forced to let that go. In other words, every healthy culture ate as many animal source foods as they had available to them. So that was certainly part of the foundational thing. But the other piece, and the one where my ears really perked up, was that in every single instance, the, every one of these um, seemingly optimally healthy cultures, um, in every case, the, the food that was most sought after, uh, most considered most sacred, that was um, most valued, was the one that was the most fat and fat-soluble nutrient-rich. And I think what we have in that combination is, bingo, we have a foundational framework here. And as long as that foundational framework was in place, um, then whatever else they did, you know, either contributed to or perhaps compromised that, but if it was in place enough, then they could perhaps, given the pristine environment of our ancestors, and even, you know, within this, uh, you know, within the last couple thousand years, able to compensate, perhaps, for whatever compromises may have come along. And I consider compromises things like, you know, uh, know, starchy foods and, and sugary foods that may have been available to these people, even in their natural state. Yeah. Um, we don't have any foundational, scientifically established foundational human requirement for those foods. Um, and, you know, the research is available now, and, and that's part of what I bring to the equation, too. Let's look at human longevity research. Let's see what that has to say about all this. And how does mm. that foundational approach to eating, how does that dovetail into, how, how can we optimize that from a longevity standpoint? Because certainly our ancestors wouldn't have been thinking that way, probably. 
um, they, they probably knew more about what was healthy and what wasn't than we do. But at the same time, you know, they're eating to survive. They're, they're going after certain things preferentially. Um, but, you know, they also ate, you know, huge piles of meat. And, you know, was that, do we need to do the same thing uh, to be optimally healthy? Well, it turns out, well, no. We actually, we need to meet our protein requirements um, complete protein requirements, and we're best designed to do that from animal source foods in a way that helps to trigger hydrochloric acid, which triggers then, you know, the whole digestive, uh, the whole healthy digestive cascade that's supposed to happen. Uh, we have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system, so we need to make use of that, to, you know, if, if we're going to get everything we need to out of our food. and. And optimize the digestive process because you can be eating the healthiest food in the world. And if you can't digest it properly, um, or if you're not triggering the right things at the right times, at the very least, that food's not going to do much for you. And and at worst, you know, it could be working at cross purposes with your best health. So, um, and so, and what longevity research tells us is that, you know, that. The thing that that's involved with coordinating our energy stores with re, with reproduction and lifespan is basically insulin. It's not a blood sugar hormone. It's it's something else. It does does that sort of as a default, but it's not its primary purpose biologically. It takes excess nutrients and squirrels them away into storage for a rainy day, among other things. And since there is no human dietary requirement for carbohydrates, virtually every molecule of sugar and starch that we consume is more or less considered excess. And so it gets tucked away very frequently in places where we'd rather not have it. And then, you know, um, and then it turns out that there's this other metabolic pathway, mTOR, where um, that is our sort of body's default protein sensor, mammalian target of rapamycin. And when we consume protein in excess of what we need to re- rebuild and regenerate our tissues, um, then it triggers this whole cascade of things that is a reproductive pathway, which if you're trying to reproduce is fine and dandy. But if you're not interested in reproducing right now or your past reproductive age has the potential to shorten your lifespan and, um, you know, even generate things like cancer. How and does so, it do that, Nora? Well, so what happens when we trigger the mTOR pathway is that it, it says, hey, we've got nutrients in excess of what we need for maintenance and repair right now. Great time to reproduce. Let's start making new cells. And so it basically stimulates a process of cellular proliferation, which is energy intensive. And if you're not in need of extra cells, um, you know, that's a little bit of a waste of time and energy. Um, If you're trying to reproduce, fine. But if you're not, you know, and and we're living in modern times in, in an ocean of toxic sludge in our air, water and, and food supply and all sorts of mutagenic substances, both seen and unseen, are impinging upon us in ways that cause our cells to mutate as we age, that, mm-hmm. that, that does damage to our DNA. So what happens when you take those mutated damaged cells and then you, you instruct them to start, you stimulate them to proliferate? You, it's, it, this is a mechanism for the development of cancer. 
Hmm. which is expected, by the way, to increase more than 70% in the next 20 years, according to the World Health Organization. And I think that's a low number. I think it's going to be higher than that. Nor, can I ask a, a quick follow-up to that? Does the stimulation of this mTOR, does it affect the glucose pathway somehow, where more sugar ends up in the system that would maybe feed into these cancers? Well, we know that insulin is also a major uh, instigator of cancerous processes. It's very highly, highly associated with cancerous processes. Mm -hmm. And we know no cancer can live without sugar. And so what happens is, you know, once cancer starts to take over, of course, everything starts getting shunted, you know, preferentially toward, you know, increasing that fuel supply and whatever. You know, they're, they're related pathways, and they're both proliferative. You know, insulin is also a proliferative pathway. Um, but um, we know that what the magical thing that happens when you quiet the demand for insulin and, you, you know, you, 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 you take away, you know, the glucose that your body doesn't need mm-hmm. and you moderate that protein intake to just what you need instead of you know, what you think you might want in the moment, Um, then this magical thing kind of happens where, and I I like to put it in modern day economic terms because everybody can relate to this. It's kind of like, okay, it's too, your body looks at that set of circumstances that, you know, well, there's, there's protein trickling in and, uh, oh, you know, no sugar starch, oh, you know, or anything like that. It appears to that, you know, it's 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 much too costly to build a new house right now. So let's just fix up the one we've got. Mm. And what it's fixing up is you. So your body goes into regeneration and repair mode of your existing cellular uh, matrix. So Autophagy. Yeah, well, yeah. Your 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 existing tissues. Your body sets to work at at trying to help you feel healthier and better so that you will live long enough to maybe reproduce another day. Mm-hmm. But it, but in the meantime, the effect of this um, is actually anti-aging, mm-hmm. right? Your body is actually repairing and regenerating itself instead of wasting energy creating new cells you don't need. Uh, and that regenerative uh, process um, is actually, you know, has a tremendous range of benefits and, and it helps explain why for the last hundred years or so that uh, longevity researchers have been dis- you know talking about caloric restriction as being this amazing thing for expanding extending lifespan at, at lifespan and it always seems so counterintuitive it's like you know, why would restricting nutrients actually be an impetus for longer lifespan well, you know, they certainly found the two things. It was insulin and mTOR yeah. were the players. And that's because when life first developed on Earth, um, you know, we still have, you know, genes from the, you know, from the primordial ooze, you know, in us. And and the, all the reproductive mechanisms were established back then in these primordial seas with bacteria and whatever, where the, the two things available for energy and reproduction were protein and sugar. And so once this planet developed an oxygen-based atmosphere and, and this whole new type of cell was able to arise out of that, this eukaryotic cell that um, that uh, was now able to differentiate into different organs and tissues and become more complex organisms, that allowed for anaerobic fuel because before everything was fueled by anaerobic processes. 
um, which, by the way, cancer is also. Uh, sugar and protein. Sugar mainly is, is, is the primary fermentative fuel. But well, suddenly we had an oxidative um, you know, atmosphere, and, and with oxygen came the, this, this new fuel that we could make use of, which was fat. Yeah. And so because of this, fat doesn't really factor in to that whole caloric restriction model. It can't. It can't, right. It can't. And, um, you know, all of this stuff started kind of dawning on me a few years back. Uh, I probably was starting to think about writing this book back in maybe 2012 or so, where I suddenly realized, wait a minute, fat isn't just not as bad as we once thought, or like it's okay as long as it's the right fats, which is essential. it, it's not even just essential. It's literally central yes. to human health. And not only that, central to what literally made us human in the first place. Because it was our taste for fat, ultimately, that drove um, the the unprecedented rate of encephalization of the human brain. Yeah. And when you look at the, at, the, at the two fatty acids most... Um, are you calling me a fathead? <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling us all fathead. Well, exactly. Only as a compliment. I, I do that all the time when I'm in when I'm in you're talks, Nora. I always say, you know what? It's going to sound like I'm insulting the audience, but you're all a bunch of fatheads. <laughs> well, you know, I'm here to tell you there are a few potato heads out there in Great This is true. Yeah. They they will be uh, unnamed exactly. <laughs> yeah, shall be. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's so. But our fat, our, our brains, the, the thing that is most unique about us as a species, the thing, you know, what is actually lies at the center of the universe that we know of is the most single sophisticated, you know, biological marvel is the human brain. Yes. And it is constructed from the very fats that we choose to supply it with, with what we choose to Even eat. Even the crappy ones. Even the crappy ones, yep. which you know, you, and you eat crappy fats, you get you know crappy results there with you go. that. Uh, or you know, so that so the two fats, fatty acids, most responsible for human cognition in the first place, that make us unique, cer- certainly from other primates, are number one, arachidonic acid, and number two, docosahexaenoic acid. These twenty and twenty-two carbon fats, which by the way are exclusively found within our food supply, in animal source foods. And if DHA isn't in your diet, it ain't in your brain either. Um, so vegans are SOL? They're pretty much SOL. I mean, I suppose you can eat the algae-based form of DHA, which is extracted frequently in questionable through questionable methods. Um, that's, you know, we our ancestors didn't evolve, you know, slurping up algae. This is not food for humans. I mean, you know, maybe in a desperate moment. But, Slurping up uh, algae. I'm thinking of like a, a 7-Eleven Slurpee. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of green and foamy. Yeah. yeah. Not very sweet, though. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's squishy. Squishy. <laughs> Please pay for your purchase and get out and come again. Tastes like yeah. chicken. Yes, tastes like chicken. Right. So, yeah, I'm quoting The Simpsons now. But anyway. <laughs> I'm a Simpsons fan. So, um, Apu, I think was his name. Anyway, um, so, yeah, so so DHA is one of these things that, you know, radically missing from the food supply. There's, and and by the way, and I'm sure your viewers or your listeners or whatever savvy enough to know that 
you know, you're not going to get this from flax oil or chia seed oil or sachinichi oil or walnuts or whatever the hell. The the metabolic, so the the elongation process from alpha-linolenic acid to DHA is a multi-step enzymatic process. And a good portion of the population doesn't even have the first enzyme in that process to initiate that elongation. And it's a very expensive, very difficult elongation process. We are designed to get these things in their pre-elongated form from animals that are better able to do that more efficiently who have done the work for us. That's how we're designed. As humans, you know, so yeah, we're theoretically omnivores, right? Technically, we can stuff all kinds of things in our faces and call it good. But we are not designed, and I'm not saying don't eat plant source foods. In fact, if you were to look at my dinner plate, you'd probably see more vegetables and greens on there. And you might wonder at first glance if I was a vegetarian. And then you look a little more closely and say, oh, does that is that steak <laughs> you know, or, or lamb or liver or whatever? And then you look even more closely and you see it's kind of glistening a bit because, you know, um, the the primary caloric value of my meal is actually coming from fat. Um, but plant-based foods... I think are more important fibrous vegetables and greens, for instance, and cultured vegetables and things like that, much more important to us now than I think they ever used to be during our long evolutionary um, development, just simply because of the toxic sludge we're living in. And these things supply us with particularly, uh, you know, to some degree, antioxidants, which are, you know, in some ways, neither here nor there, but but also phytonutrients that that do have a, a you know, a demonstrated benefit um, for us. And they, they also tend to be rather detoxifying in their effects. And God knows we need all the detoxification help we can get. Yeah. And they also provide extra substrate. I say extra because they're not the sole substrate for our microbiome, right? For their gastrointestinal flora, uh, hopefully healthy gastrointestinal flora to feed on. America has a new favorite protein bar, and it's the chocolate chip cookie dough bar from Quest Nutrition. Each Quest bar contains 21 grams of protein, is packed with 14 grams of fiber, and has just one gram of sugar. Visit their website, questnutrition.com, to find their full selection of bars, shakes, chips, and more. And coming soon, don't miss the special keto line of products that have been under development for the past two years. Again, and give them a try at questnutrition.com. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I really missed when I started this low-carb thing way back in 2004 was baked goods. You know, like a muffin. There's just something about that cake texture that's awesomely satisfying to hit the spot. But up until now, it's been off-limits on my low-carb, ketogenic lifestyle. So I was psyched a few weeks back when I first discovered a brand new product called Nush. That's Nush, kind of like Nosh, but with a U. Nush cakes are not like so much of the other low-carb stuff already out there, partly because of their wonderful cakey texture. They're not tough or dry or chewy. They're just really flavorful cakes. Nush cakes also happen to be certified organic, 
certified gluten-free and super low in sugar and carbohydrates with just two to three net carbs per cake. The Nush people sent me samples of their flavors, including banana nut, lemon poppy seed, cocoa, and carrot spice. I liked the banana nut one the best, but I really like all of them, and I think you will too. Go to nushfoods.com and be sure to enter the coupon code JIMMY at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Again, that's nushfoods.com for the best tasting low-carb baked good you'll ever taste. Nush Foods. Hey, Ketonians, in case you hadn't heard, Carl and Richard from the Two Keto Dudes podcast, along with a bunch of their keto friends, are going to make history by turning the U.S. town of New London, Connecticut, ketogenic for the weekend of July 15th and 16th. Keto Fest promises to be not only educational, but a whole lot of fun. Jimmy's Fasting Talk co-host, Megan Ramos, and Jimmy will be speaking as part of this event, along with Eric Westman, Jeff Gerber, Ivor Cummins, and a bunch of other great keto thought leaders. In addition to these great talks, they're having an outdoor keto barbecue with a pig picking, live music, walking, running, and cycle tours, and cooking and fitness lessons. They've got the local restaurants and the mayor on board as well. New London in July is a popular destination, so you need to nail down your hotel room and get your tickets as soon as possible. Tickets are on sale now at KetoFest.com. That's KetoFest.com. You know, there is fermentable fiber in meat as well, meat in, in connective tissue. Fiber uh, in meat? What? What? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, and yes, I know that those studies were done, with, you know, demonstrated this in cheetahs. But look, like cheetahs, we have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system. We can live without plant foods, and we have for long stretches of our evolutionary history in, in very, a variety of circumstances. Um, we still have microbiome, you know, but we still had microbiomes, and cheetahs do too. Um, and so it stands to reason that we're as well uh, able to make use of that as they are. Um, and, you know, we don't have a fermentative based digestive system that is characteristic of the animals that are actually designed to get their nutrition uh, they're solely from plant based foods. And even with the animals that are designed to get their primary nutrition from plant-based foods, what are they doing all day? Yeah. Their faces are in the bushes, they're in the grass, they're in the trees, they're wherever, eating constantly in order to meet those nutritional requirements. And um, But even then, and, and I take no small pleasure in pointing this out, um, that I am prepared to say that literally, so that, well, okay, so that even a cow, we'll just use a cow uh, or a deer, whatever, is actually designed to get at least 70% of its caloric energy from short-chain saturated fats mm-hmm. from the bacterial fermentation of all that fiber. Yep. So all large mammals are actually designed to be fat burners. But by far, in the mammalian kingdom, we are designed, the best design. To and most efficiently designed to make use of fat as our full-time primary source of fuel, and uh, and also we're we're unique in that our brains are able to run on ketones more or less uh, perpetually ongoing. I have heard it's, that somewhere. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'm sure you have heard that somewhere. So, so, well, uh, some, Nor, can very, I ask you a quick question about dietary fat versus stored body fat? Because this is a 
something that comes up again and again, and I know you've answered it a million times to your blue in the face, but uh, the argument is why do you need a high fat diet when you've got plenty of fat on an obese person, an overweight person that's insulin resistant? Why would you need to eat fat in the diet if you've got plenty of fat on your body? Right. Well, so, okay, so here's the deal. So we're designed to run on one of two types of fuel, sugar or fat, um, as a primary source of fuel. And by far, demonstrably, the most natural source of fuel would be fat. But we've cultivated a sugar-burning metabolism in modern times, um, you know, through through a process of adopting a carbohydrate-based diet. You know, is that is that's what you're throwing at your body and you're saying, here's what you have. You know, your body's going to burn that off preferentially for fuel because um, I, I think that there is some impetus. This is a, I, this is a theoretical uh, thing, but I think your body's very quick to grab sugar and burn it quickly because it is inherently damaging um, to, to your tissues and that sort of a thing. So your body deals with it very quickly. And it's also, you know, our... It's our kind of best form of rocket fuel, right? In the moment, if there is, if there's an emergency or some major exertion you have to make, then anaerobic, um, it, it's a great anaerobic fuel. But uh, unless you are trying to outrun a cantankerous woolly mammoth, it doesn't necessarily make sense to be running on rocket fuel if all you're doing is just you know driving to and from work and kind of handling, you know, basic everyday things and um, and all of that. That makes no sense. Uh, it, it's it's a real waste, and you're running a hotter engine than you need to, you know, in, in the process. And you know, if if you had to rely on a vehicle that you were going to drive cross country with, um, would you, would you want to rely on one of these Indy 500 things, or would you want like a Volvo, you know, <laughs> was running on either diesel or you know or or you know a regular petroleom? At least you didn't say Hugo. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Or well, Prius. Wish, yeah. <laughs> And you know, looking good's important too. Um, so, yeah, um, you want that thing that's going to be reliable. And you know, we know that those engines that burn really hot—they look cool on the racetrack, but they're having to pull over constantly and get worked on because, you know, it's it's just very hard on an engine to run that hot all the time. So, but nature would never have been so stupid as to just give us one option, right? So, but but fat. Actually, of course, it has double the calories of glucose or protein, but it actually has a potential to produce four times the amount of energy. It's a very efficient fuel. We store it efficiently, and it can be available to us around the clock in the absence of uh, even in the absence of regular meals. So it's very stabilizing to the brain and nervous system. It's, It's a stable source of energy as long as you're adapted to using it. The problem is that if, you know, we realize that we have a very basically still we, we think of ourselves as you know terribly modernized i would say domesticated but whatever um but we still have a very primitive physiological makeup in that primitive physio to that primitive physiological ice age makeup um we you know and we've been in ice age um you know in other words I'm speaking of extremes. You know, we became human by surviving disasters and extreme changes in climate that involved extreme cold and also extreme heat, drought and wildfires, volcanic eruptions, all kinds of things. And to our ancient human physiology, fat ultimately ultimately means survival. And so one of the things that I discovered um, 
I stumbled across in you know one of these palm to the forehead moments, and I'd already handed in no. my manuscript, and I was just kicking myself up and down that I didn't hadn't realized this. I did a Simpsons reference, and you missed it. <laughs> no, 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 that wasn't a very good. No, no. Yeah, you got to get that. Yeah, a little, little lower there, Jim. No. <laughs> there you go. No. <laughs> yeah, donuts. Um, anyway, that um, that. Where was I? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to mess you up. It's okay, it's okay. I was on a roll. And, uh, you told sorry. me you were a fan of Simpsons, so I thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> yes, I totally am, actually. Um, I actually participated, or, well, not participated, but I actually sat in, in the control room during an actual taping of The Simpsons. Oh, which was, that would have been cool if they gave you, like, a guest voice part. <laughs> yeah, one of, my, one of my dear friends, we're totally off topic, but one of my dear friends was actually a musician for The Simpsons, and played piano for all the Simpsons episodes for yeah. the first several years and, and, and so he was good friends with Alf Clausen so I got to hang out with Alf for a whole day. That's which was, cool. It was really cool. Anyway. Anyway. So, uh, way off topic. Where was I, Jimmy? Do you remember? It's all good. Let, let's actually move on because we're actually running out of time. Uh, no. So, okay. what is the main crux of what you're trying to communicate uh, with Primal Fat Burner? Which, by the way, oh, uh, you've been talking that. a lot today, so I want to make right. sure we get your URL in there, primalfatburner.com, and we'll have a link to the book in the show notes section at the show.com But what is it that you're trying to communicate? If you were to make one central theme, is it eat more fat? No. Okay. Uh, well, it, it might be. It might be. It depends. So, number one, dietary fat, and, and, and especially dietary animal fat, is not just not as bad as we once heard, or okay in small amounts. It's literally central to what to our health and to what made us human in the first place. Okay. And I think this is a unique hypothesis in, in all of this genre of books about fat that have come out. Um, I, I, I'm really making a strong statement about this. But it's it's not just like eat more fat. More isn't necessarily better. You want to eat enough to meet your fat soluble nutrient needs and your and your essential fatty acid needs, and to also satisfy your appetite. But most people but aren't. Right, and and but it's very important that you not do this in the presence of sugar and starch. Right. Because the combination is not good. It's like throwing a lit fuse on top of a powder keg, metabolically. It's not good. The two do not pair well together. <laughs> so you know, although the butter and sour cream on the you know on the potato, bad idea. Yeah. If you are you know wanting to be optimally metabolically healthy and and really set the stage for for uh, really smoothing your whole aging process out and and optimizing it so that you maintain the best possible functionality and and whatever else. I did remember the thing I forgot. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So one of the things I noticed in the big dough moment was um, that I was going through uh, Google images of cave paintings. And I was looking, you know, for those for for some different things I was doing with them. And I love them. So I was just going, pouring through them and marveling at this amazing artwork. But I, I noticed something very curious that I had seen a jillion times, wandered about in the back of my mind and tucked away and never really thought about and suddenly it gobsmacked me that when you look at, say, for instance, like the, the paintings of Chauvy Cave, for instance, you know, you look at the paintings of cave lions and things on the wall. They were, I mean, these were amazing artists and they got 
they, they were very capable of accurately representing whatever it was that they were painting. And when they when they depicted humans, for the most part, they depicted us in ways that uh, were pretty, you know, we looked pretty thin, you know, going after with spears and whatever, uh, the animals on the cave walls. But when we were depicting the animals that we hunted for food, what you saw was something that looked like it came straight out of the Macy's Day Parade. This very disproportionately fat animal with tiny little stick legs that just looked ballooned. <laughs> and, um, and consistently, painting after painting after painting, these, you know, these deer that just, you know, that just look ridiculous in terms of the proportion. Tiny little head, tiny little feet, and big fat bodies. And we now we're coming to understand now. I think in anthropology or paleoanthropology and whatever, they're coming to understand that, um, you know, that yeah, these caves, the paintings were largely shamanic in nature. There was a you know, it was a way of maybe invoking uh, some ideal, right? Invoking That's what they wanted. Wanted yes, invoking the very characteristics they most wanted from the animals that they hunted. Interesting. That was the thing. That was ding, 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 central ding. to their objectives, right? Yeah. And we know that up until 10,000 years ago, we had at least 120 more species of these massive herbivores, these megafauna, that had huge amounts of body fat, woolly mammoths at least 50% body fat. And we would have gobbled up every bit of that. And once the once all of that ended very cataclysmically, suddenly we're left with, you know, with deer being more or less the largest animals running around um, in, in most places, you know, that are comparatively leaner, harder to catch. So we became better at selecting for fat in those animals. But we started eating leaner animals, which, of course, led certain people in the paleo research arena to say, oh, you know, we should be all eating lean meat and low fat and whatever. No. Yeah, we Lauren Cordain pushed that really hard early. He did, yeah, and he kind of semi-apologized for that later, but he's still... 2012, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I was doing the chicken dance in the back of the room when that happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, actually, it was 2011 I, I watched him do that. Oh, that's good. The book yeah. came out, I think, around that time, that new book that he did. Well, it was at the very first ancestral health thing where he kind of got up and said, yeah, saturated fat isn't so bad after all. Oops. What was that you said, Lord? Oh, yeah, it was saturated fat isn't so bad after all. What? Yeah, so I was really... You know, happy to see that. You did the chicken dance. Oh yes. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> yes, we we had poke where I grew up in Minnesota. There you go. Fortunately, not quite where I was living, but yeah, we heard rumors. <laughs> um. So, anyway, yeah, this was um. Yeah, anyway, yeah, and and Wesson Price pointed that out, you know, too, that fat was always, you know, even in, in more Neolithic times, was still central to importance. The problem is that once we started growing stuff, uh, and particularly growing more starchy plants, and once we figured out how to, you know, get the, make starch calories actually available by, by building fire at will and, and cooking things more thoroughly and whatever... You know, we had a broader range of options available to us. We'd already developed our big brains by then. And might I point out that our brains should be growing by leaps and bounds if starch were the primary fuel for the human brain, if that's what made us human, you know, was our being our ability to cook and, and eat starch. Um, but in fact, the opposite seems to be happening. We've lost just over 10% of our brain volume in the last 10,000 years. Mm. Uh, evolution may not be heading quite in the direction we'd hoped. And... Um, yeah. So anyway, 
So, Nora, I have to ask one more question before we go, because this is becoming uh, quite popular online, uh, the push for a higher protein intake for the purposes of nutritional ketosis. And you're one of the few people that are out there pushing the opposite, moderating down on the protein. I know Dr. Ron Rosedale is also in that same camp, Uh, Dr. Adam Nally and myself. You know, there's only a few of us that seem to be really prominently saying, you know, it's it's a higher fat diet and moderate protein, but there's this contingent online that are insistent that a higher protein, moderate fat diet is the way to go. How do you, you respond? Get, you will get a very weak form of ketosis from it. You minimize carbs and uh, and then you throw lots of extra protein in the mix. Well, we can convert, you know, at roughly anywhere from, you know, depending on who you listen to. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 the uh, so yeah so either you know Doctor uh, Richard not Feynman uh, the Bernstein. diabetes Richard Bernstein yeah you know he says at about a thirty six or so percent efficiency rate uh, Krebs actually said it was more like a fifty eight percent efficiency rate where we can take that extra protein and then convert it into sugar gluconeogenesis uh, yes through gluconeogenesis. You're not going to spike your blood sugar with that. It's right. a slow, laborious, and inefficient process. It's like fiber but carbs. Right. It is like creating extra carbs. So I, I once was talking with Ron Rosedale about this, and I hypothesized in the, our discussion. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I kind of think that one of the reasons so many people failed at Atkins had to do with the fact that they never quite stopped being sugar burners. Hmm. That, you know, yeah, they were producing more ketones by limiting carbohydrates, but their body was still conditioned to look for the carbs and was able to generate that through the excess protein. And that's what kind of kept them hooked on the carb thing and kept the cravings going until finally they just caved in on the cravings. Um, and he actually agreed with me. He thought that that was, that was likely true. Um, it's a hypothesis, of course, but we know that excess protein can be converted to sugar and used the same way to a certain percentage um, at a at a rather inefficient rate. But it it, it happens. But not only that, um, it, you're you're shortening your lifespan. You're increasing your potential risk for cancer, and um, and you're not going to get the full benefits of full-time ketosis, fully efficient, well-adapted ketosis, you will get some version of it. But if you really want to know what it means to eat a, a, a well-adapted, you know, efficiently adapted ketogenic diet, um, then you need to moderate that protein intake mm-hmm. and, and provide fat as the target fuel. And, and by the way, when you give your body sufficient fat to tell the hypothalamus of your brain that, hey, hunting is good, chill, you know, it's all good, there's enough coming in, then your body feels much freer to let go of the stores of fat that you would rather not have and burn those for fuel as well. And I make the case for, for moderating the amount of fat that you're consuming to meet your needs and not overly exceed them because when you're when you're filling your cup with MCT oil and butter and all this other stuff, and we didn't even take on the dairy thing. I really wanted to with you, but I don't oh, think we've done to. that before when you've been on previously talked about why you're not a fan of dairy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And you I talk about it in your book as well. From, from a variety of standpoints, including people with APOE4 variants. It's just, it's not optimal. Right. Um, um, but 
that you know people are adding all this stuff, all this extra because they think because fat's good for you, more is better. Yeah. And and look, if you're trying to lose weight and you're adding extra fat, well, you're adding extra fuel that your body's got to burn through before it gets to the stuff you want to get rid of. Right. Provide enough to create the impetus to tell your brain that hey, hunting is good. This is you know, and then that that gives your body the freedom then the the license or whatever to release the fat stores you have to burn that for fuel as well because you've got your brain convinced that you're not in starvation mode um that that it doesn't have to hoard fat right that it doesn't have to become really efficient at hanging on to the fat stores you've got and so um so that's the way to release fat for fuel that's why eating fat helps burn fat and Mm -hmm. That was the lesson I learned when I was up in the high Arctic, you know, I, I went up there, you know, weighing a few pounds more than I wanted to. Um, and, uh, and I started developing cravings for fat being out on the tundra and whatever that I'd never had before. And I ended up spending the whole summer just stuffing my face with fat rich foods. And at the end of the summer, I lost 25 pounds. Now I know that thermogenic, you know, there were thermogenic processes at work. Um, although I was very well bundled against the cold and all that, but it, there was more to it than that because, mm-hmm. according to the conventional wisdom, I should have packed on quite a few pounds, and I didn't. Sure. Um, it, the opposite happened. So there was clearly something happening that was in direct contrast to what I had been taught, and that's what started me down the path of questioning this whole thing, and has led me to where I am now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her name is Nora Gedgaudis, and as you can tell from today's show, she's a wealth of information uh, about nutrition, and definitely go check her out, primalfatburner.com, and pick up a copy of her latest book, Primal Fat Burner, Live Longer, Slow Aging, Superpower Your Brain, and Save Your Life with a High-Fat, Low-Carb, Paleo Diet. And Nora, it's always a pleasure to have you here on the Live in La Vida Low-Carb Show. Oh, thanks, Jimmy. It's always a pleasure for me, too. It's just, it's great talking to you. It's a big, warm fuzzy. And I look forward to seeing you. Are you going to be down at Paleo FX? Paleo FX is the same week as our low-carb cruise. So, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to have to pass on PFX oh, oh. this year. Oh, bummer. Well, I will see you at KetoCon, right? Yes, KetoCon. Uh, uh, me and Keto Evangelist are putting that on, and we're excited to have Norgit Gattis there. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, oh. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Woohoo! Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, enough Simpsons sounds effects. Bye. Yes. (laughs) Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll start a series of lectures from the 2016 Low Carb USA Conference with Karen Thompson. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light. <laughs>